So I went to college in uh, 1970. Yes, I know some of you over here weren't born then. We won't talk about that. And it was a very interesting time in life. You know, the Vietnam War was going, the huge protest movements were going on. I myself sat in the uh, moratorium day and made our school principal mad. So we wore black armbands. We went to TCU and we sat out on the green and protested the war. Philosophy was huge. Ideas were discussed. And I was grappling with those ideas myself. And so I went to college and I majored in psychology. Now, I would like to tell you that I did that to um, discover you know, what people were like. I really did that because psychology had the most electives <laughs> and I could take other various courses. But I got there and I found out that psychologists were very interested in what makes the human being like he is. Is it nature or versus nurture? And that was the words that were used at the time. So nature meaning were you just a product of your genetics? Your DNA controlled your emotions, your thoughts, your actions? Or was it nurture that uh, the home that you were raised in? Uh, of course, in that particular era, kids of my age didn't want that to be the case because we always wanted to be the exact opposite of our parents. And then, of course, you have children and you're talking to them and your father's words come out of your mouth and, you know, you don't know where that came from, but... That's what we thought we were doing. The Apostle Paul was also a guy that grappled with ideas. You know, he had been a well-educated man, and he was a prodigy. He was extremely intelligent. He was extremely well-read, and he was extremely zealous for the Jewish religion. <clears throat> and then one day, when he was going to Damascus to be zealous... The Lord Jesus appeared to him, struck him down with a bright light, and revealed himself to him. And Paul had to rethink what was going on. But in the process, this great mind did absorb the ideas of the Old Testament, putting in the ideas that Jesus had taught, and he understood what the human being was. And in Ephesians 2, he talks about that for us, and that's what we're going to look at today. But he's going to do that in terms of sin and who we were as sinners before we came to Christ and who we are as sinners after we came to Christ. So let's start by looking at the first three verses of that chapter. <clears throat> he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul was not a guy to sugarcoat things, was he? <clears throat> and so... He tells us several things about what the person is without Christ. And the first one is that we are dead in sins. So what's the uh, main characteristic of a dead person? 
Well, number one, they're not alive. That was an easy one, right? Uh, but they can't do anything, can they? Can't do anything for themselves at all. Yeah, and you remember the story of Lazarus? He dies while Jesus is away and he's buried. And Jesus then comes to see him. All these people are grieving. What could Lazarus do for himself at that point? He could do nothing. What could he do for his sisters, Mary and Martha? He couldn't do anything. He was completely incapable of doing anything because he was physically dead. And that's a picture for us that we are spiritually dead until we are reborn in Christ. So remember when, uh, when Adam was in the garden, uh, proved to us this is not a new concept. Uh, God made an arrangement with Adam and he put him in this perfect garden and he said to him, you can eat of anything here except for one thing. You can't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. One thing. So God could say, I guess you had one job. <clears throat> and what did he say would happen to him if he did eat of that tree? You will die. You will surely die. And, and Adam did eat, and Adam did experience spiritual death and was cast out of God's presence. Paul also picks up that theme in Romans in a verse I'm sure you know. He says, the wages of sin is death. And he's talking about spiritual death. Well, Paul also says we were following the world, the course of the world. And so the world, in most of the time in the New Testament, doesn't talk about the ball that we live on, the planet. It means that part of humanity that is in opposition to God, that is in rebellion against God, uh, and certainly that is not part of Christ. And uh, they are out there and they are doing their thing as we were before we came to Christ. And we, so, you know, your mom has probably told you at times, you know, like, if everybody else was jumping off the cliff, would you, do, do parents still say that? My parents said that to me all the time. Uh, <clears throat> and you're always tempted to say yes, if they were well-dressed, you would do that, right? But, uh, you know, we, we want to follow the world. You know, when you get to be about 11 or 12, Peer pressure becomes intense, doesn't it? Because you want to fit into the world. That actually doesn't go away. When I was about 35, I was at a Sunday school party one day, and we were standing around, and I realized that everybody there was dressed just alike. All the men had on Basswegians, pressed khaki pants, starched Oxford button-down shirts, and all the women had on long khaki skirts, and white shirts with these brass beads hanging on them. And I was like, oh, we're still in middle school. We've still got that pressure. I said, next time I'm going to wear jeans. You know, except that I didn't. <laughs> so I was not immune. Um, but then, worse, he says, we were following the devil. And so nobody would really, but well, very few people would want to admit that they followed the devil. There are those people we know that they have that book and they meet and they wear red robes and they do all that stuff and they make movies about them. But the average person doesn't think of himself following the devil, but he does follow the devil because when you follow the way of the world as opposed to the way of God and of Christ, you are following the devil because he's the one that initiated that, right? He was the first rebel 
that we know about and rebelled against God's rule and, and wanted to be God. Uh, and people today, many people today, want to be their own God. And he said, we were living for the passions of the flesh. And so I know the first thing you think about there is sex, and that would be one of them. But really, any uh, of your own personal desires that you have would fit in that category. So some people are tempted by the flesh. They want to take drugs. Uh, they want to uh, indulge in uh, active sex life. But other people have desires of the mind. They want to be important. They want to be significant. Have you ever heard somebody say, I want to, I want to be remembered after I'm gone? You know, when somebody gives money uh, to an outfit and they put their name on the building, why do they do that? Why does the guy want that? Well, they want that because they want to be significant and they want something to last. It doesn't. And you can prove that if you want to by going to Boston. And uh, there on the edge of downtown, there's a building and it has a plaque on there that says Dale Moody, the great evangelist. And, uh, and nobody knows in Boston who that is. <laughs> you know, so uh, that's what happens. But that's what we want. We have fleshly desires, if you will, desires that we want to do. Uh, and arrogance is a sin that comes out of that pretentiousness, all of those things. But I think the worst one that he says there is that we were uh, children of wrath, like the worst of mankind. You don't hear very many sermons about wrath, do you? I, I looked at some podcasts this week. None of them were really about wrath. Uh, we like more to think about God's love, and that's natural. But God does have wrath. So what is wrath? Wrath is this intense, fierce anger that leads to judgment. Now, I know that sometimes people will tell you God doesn't sweat the small sins or God's not really worried about any of that. Can I just tell you that that's wrong? God is. Uh, and that's how you got to be an object of wrath before you came to Christ. Now, I wish I was Scottish here because they can say the word wrath much better than a West Texas boy. It comes out sort of like wrath. And does that just make you kind of quake in your shoes, doesn't it? You know, and, and, uh, but we have to understand that, that God is completely holy, right? Completely holy. There is no sin in him. There's no fickleness in God. We sing that song, there is no shadow of turning in thee. That's what that means. You know, the Greek gods were fickle, and so they might appear in different forms. They might have uh, intercourse with human beings. They might change alliances. Our God is always the same, and he is always holy, and he cannot tolerate sin, and sin will not come into heaven, and sin will not be in the new creation. And in fact, it says that to us in Revelation. There's not going to be any of that there because he is completely holy. And so those who are not holy will experience his wrath. Now you say, okay, Larry, <clears throat> all that hippie stuff in the 70s has gotten to you. There's not that much about wrath in the Bible. My answer to you would be, really? Here's some examples. Well, Adam and Eve. So God could have said, 
all right, Adam, so, you know, I mean, I know that serpent, he was, he was good looking and tricky, and, uh, and you did the one thing I told you not to do, and now, you know, now you are judging good and evil like you were God. You really wanted to be God, but you know, that's okay. We'll catch you tomorrow. But he didn't do that, did he? He, he sent them out of his presence. It says sent in the uh, English Standard Version. There's a sort of a more powerful note to that, though. It's more like he thrust them out of the garden. He pushed them out. And do you remember what he did after that? He stuck an angel with a flaming sword there. They're not coming back in. Okay, so that was God's wrath. Then there was that uh, unfortunate event during Noah's time. Do you remember that? And, and, and the scripture says that every intention of men and women at that time were evil, you know, except for Noah. And God made it rain for 40 days, and the w world was destroyed by flood because it was evil. That was an expression of God's wrath. Then there was the thing with Sodom. Remember that? Lot's living down there, you know, and the Lord comes with the two angels. Uh, but the long, the short version is that he destroyed, actually not Sodom, but all the cities in that plain. Uh, and it said that he uh, rained down sulfur on them, fire and sulfur. It's so, they were so destroyed that we actually can't find the cities now. Uh, but there's a, a guy that walks around down there looking for it, and I, I saw a documentary once, and you can pick up rocks there, and they call them brimstone. It's like fire and brimstone, right? You can strike a match and light that rock. It will burn, you know, and that was this guy saying, you know, it must be something to that Bible story because here's that fire and the sulfur that came down. When Israel broke the covenant with God and began to worship other gods, just like he did with Adam, in his wrath, he thrust them out of the holy land that was his, Canaan, and sent them into exile in pagan countries. You know, the, uh, we, it, that exile thing, it doesn't sound that bad, because you may be thinking, I took an airplane, I went to Paris and lived in an apartment, and wrote books like Hemingway. But they marched across the African desert from Canaan to uh, Babylon. And then the survivors got there with absolutely nothing and had to find some way to live there. And they had no temple because it had been destroyed and, uh, and their relatives had been killed and, and they lived in a foreign country for 70 years as suffering the wrath of God. <clears throat> if that doesn't convince you, the last one is I'd just say flip over to the book of Revelation at the back to chapter 21. And you've had a judgment there. Satan's been defeated. Death has been defeated. They open up the books and, and, and the books are books of works. And then they open up the book of life. And uh, everybody whose name is in the book of life is allowed to exit, if you will. And everybody else is cast into the lake of fire. Okay, so lake of fire, obviously fire meaning judgment, but clearly a painful tormented existence, right? Jesus spoke of outer darkness. He spoke of weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, grinding your teeth and suffering that goes on forever. So the sinner who has not come to Christ is an object of God's wrath. 
And that's not something you want to experience. And he says it was like the rest of mankind. So he's talking to believers in Ephesus, right? This book is written to the church of Ephesus. So he's writing to Christians primarily here. And some of them are Jewish and probably feel like they were better than these pagan Gentiles that had become Christians. But he says you to the whole audience were like the rest of mankind. We were all like that. And Paul being a Jew, I think, was including Jews in that. Uh, and you today sitting in the auditorium are one of those people if you have not come to Christ as well. Verses 4 through 6, he talks about what God did in this situation. And he says, so you're children of wrath like the rest of my, mankind, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So I may, I may have majored in psychology, but I minored in English, which is my true love. And I love a good sentence. And if you can find one in a really good paragraph. And let me just say, this is one. Now, if you've got the New International Version, unfortunately, they water down this transition uh, more than the, the translations that go back to the, the King James. Because the, the Greek phrasing of it is, but God now, sometimes we rearrange sentences to make them more familiar to us. But in this case, if you do that, you lose this great transition from being children of wrath, we being children of wrath, but God did something about that. So if you were an old-fashioned Baptist preacher like I grew up with, you would, you would hammer on this in your sermon, and you would say, we were dead in sin, but God made us alive in Christ. We were following the devil to hell, but God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places. We were objects of wrath, but God made us objects of mercy. So let's think back at Lazarus again in the death thing. Uh, so Lazarus is in the tomb dead, motionless, lifeless, but Jesus intervenes and calls him out to life, doesn't he? Now, it was physical life in this case, but it's a good picture uh, of the but God sense here. Lazarus was dead, but God gave him life. We are dead spiritually in sin, but God will make us alive in Christ. So, you know, we're following the devil on the road to hell, uh, the way he pictures this. But instead, God raises us up to sit with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, how does he do that? Because obviously, you guys are all sitting in the pew. I'm not sure why I have to stand up and you don't. But still, how does that happen? What does that mean? Well, so Christ is raised, we know, and he is there in heaven. And he is sitting at the right hand of God, right? It's what the scripture tells us. And so the picture is he is on a throne next to the throne of the Father. And he's reigning over all things. And the Bible says that he's going to stay there until God puts everything under his feet. But then he says, we're there with him. So how would that be? Well, I think 
first of all, it's a picture of the fact that in eternity, the Bible says we will reign with him. And, and I don't know exactly how we will reign, but I'm assuming in the, the new creation, believers will have some sort of authority over the earth uh, and we will reign with Christ. But I think there's also a picture here of uh, intimacy. So in the Gospel of John, Jesus continually says, I only did what the Father told me to do, and I only say what I heard the Father say. So the image there is that he is right there with the Father, and the Father reveals things to him. And I think he is saying to us that we have this relationship with Christ that is so intimate that he reveals things to us. Now, I'll confess to you, I'm, I'm teaching the Gospel of John in Sunday school. That's why all these examples come from the Gospel of John. Uh, but there's a great picture at the Last Supper. So the disciples are all in this room with Jesus, and they, they're around this low table. Uh, they didn't sit in dining chairs like we did. They're, they're actually laying on their left side uh, on a cushion by the table so they can reach with their right hand over and get food. And so the disciples are, you know, laid out around that table. Judas is gone at this point. And, uh, and so Jesus tells them, one is going to betray me. I, I say he's gone. He's fixing to be gone. And Peter across the room is like motioning to John, you know, he's like, that's Jesus, who it is. And so John is, is sitting at Jesus' right hand, laying at Jesus' right hand, and he just turns to Jesus, and it says he lays against his chest. And Jesus basically whispers in his ear who it's going to be. So that's, what is that? It's a picture of intimacy, right? Now, I know in America, you know, I would get upset if Mike Peterson came and laid on my chest, Okay. But in the Semitic world, that's not the case. And it was a sign that they had this great friendship and, uh, and they had this intimate relationship. And, and I think that's what they're trying to portray to us, that is, John had this intimate relationship with Jesus that was based on love and on obedience. And Jesus revealed things to John, including this thing. We have that same with Jesus and we have this intimacy with him. So why did Jesus do all this? Why did he change us from objects of wrath? Why did God do this and make us objects of grace? Verse 4 says he did that because he is rich in mercy and great love for us. So if you've been awake the whole time so far, bless you. And, and secondly, you, you're going to say, well, there you, you just told me that he was a God of wrath. And now you're telling me he's a God of love. So, so God is not one-dimensional, okay? And, and you're not one-dimensional either, right? You have different aspects to your personality. Uh, and uh, God has different characteristics. But he is all those things all the time. So yes, he is a God of justice, which results in the production of wrath at times. But he is also a God of mercy and a God of love. He is not one-faceted. He is multifaceted. And so he has done this for us in his mercy and in his love. And by the way, what is mercy? 
Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve, right? So, uh, you know, back in my day as a child, we were still using, you know, riding on shovels with coal and had candles at night and stuff. And and parents spanked their children. And um, mercy was when you got caught doing something you weren't. And then your dad's got the belt out. You're bent over the bed. And he says, I'm not going to do it this time. That's mercy, right? You can get what you deserve. We all deserve judgment. The Bible is very clear about that. He will punish sin because he is holy and just. And so if he doesn't or if he gets away for that penalty to be paid in us, that's in mercy. So let's look at verses 7 through 9. And he's going to tell us what we did uh, to deserve this. He says uh, that he raised us up to the heavenly places so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one will boast. So what did we do to deserve it? Nothing. We don't deserve it. And that's where grace comes in. If we deserved it, that would be earning it. So, here's a bad example. Back in the 80s, mid-80s, sometimes on we had Sunday night church back then. Yes, we came in suits. And sometimes we had open mic night. So, it wasn't to tell jokes, like in a comedy club. Uh, but it was to give testimonies. And, uh, and so people would come up and say, well, God was really good to me this week, and this happened, and everybody would, yes, amen. And, and then I remember this one got up, guy got up, he was an older fellow, probably about the age I am now, and, uh, but older fellow then, and he comes to the mic and he says, I don't really understand what the big fuss is about. He said, you know, I got presented with facts, and I made a decision, and I'm proud of it. And he went and sat down. And, and I wasn't really a theologian at that point in my life, but it just didn't square with me that he, he was really like, I did this, and I'm proud of it. I'm, I'm good at this. I did this. And, uh, and, and that is not at all what uh, grace is about. And so Paul goes on to tell us, okay, you didn't do anything to get this, and you are saved by grace that flows out of God's love. You, you may well have memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's a very, very well-known verse. So we receive this grace that God gives us. Oh, by the way, so mercy is not getting what you deserve. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. So that's like you wake up one day, and uh, there used to be this show. I'm going to really date myself here. It was called The Millionaire. It was in black and white. And there would be a knock at the door, and there was this man standing there in a suit, and he would hand you this envelope, and he said that an anonymous person had given you a million dollars. Okay, That's, that would be grace, right? We're giving you something you, you don't deserve. So when God gives us salvation, we don't deserve. That is grace. And so we come into that grace by faith in Christ who died for our sins. And that's where we're trying to get to, right? The way we 
cease being objects of wrath is that somebody has to experience that wrath and pay for those sins. And Christ did that on the cross. And when we come to him in faith and we unite ourselves with him, then we receive the benefits of what he did. We receive the benefits of his righteous life. And he receives and pays the penalty for our sins so that we can have his righteousness and stand before God in a righteous state rather than in a wrathful state. But then Paul goes on to say, you know what? Even this faith is not your own doing. God gave that to you. God gave you the faith that you needed to be saved. And all of this is so there's nothing to boast about. Because if we could boast about it, we would, wouldn't we? I mean, have you ever done this? So like you're in a really bad spot and you just pray that God will get me out of it. God, just I I can't do it, get me out of it. And then you get out of it. But instead of praising God, you, you start going, I did it. I pulled it off. I'm better than I thought I was. Yes, yay me, right? That's real common human nature. And that's not what we should do. Boasting should not be, when it comes to salvation, it is all the work of God and all the work of Christ. So verse 10 tells us now that we have come into Christ, now that we have been saved from our sins, we have received his grace, his favor, his love. What do we do? And he says, he, for we are his workmanship. In other words, he made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in him. Now, sometimes it's confusing, I know, because we hammer on the fact that you can't get saved by works, but then we turn around and say, you've been saved now, you've got to do good works. But they are separate things. Works don't play any part in salvation, but they are a result of our salvation. God recreates us and makes us new people And part of that new person is being designed to do good works. And that is why over history, Christians have built hospitals and established orphanages. You should read sometime the things that uh, Spurgeon did. And you can't figure out where he got the time. Because he didn't watch Downton Abbey. But still, how did he get all that done? I mean, you know, uh, planting churches and... uh, orphanages and building hospitals. Those were good works. Uh, It might be mowing your neighbor's lawn. It might be taking that green bean casserole to the family that's grieving. You know, the Baptist ladies know how to love on you when you're grieving. They bring you food, you know, and and Travis people are good. I, I never ate so well as when my father passed away. People just showed up at, at, at here's, here's five days worth of barbecue. And boom, there it was, from Cousins Barbecue. And, and, and you, you do always get the green bean casserole. I can tell you how to make that later if you want. And, uh, and, and just food. Because, and, and why was that? Well, you know, they really couldn't think of anything else to do, but they know you need to eat, and they know people are coming to your house, and they give up their time and their money to make you food, and they bring it to you. Uh, that's good works that they are doing. We visit the sick in hospitals. Uh, and I don't know if you've done that or not. You know, it's usually not fun. Uh, hospitals are not fun. But we go to comfort. We go to keep company. 
and, and help take care of those people. Uh, we grieve with those that are grieving. And we not only bring them food, but sometimes you just go and you sit with them. And, and that's a good work, that you take care of those that are grieving and, and mourning. And then the ultimate good work is we share the gospel with those that are lost. So I'm sitting in a restaurant one day, and I'm talking to a waitress. The restaurant's owned by Christians I know. She starts complaining to me that everybody on the staff is concerned about her soul. And I'm like, well, you know, of course they are, because they know who you are. They know what's going to happen to you if you don't. That is a good work. So what does this mean for you today? The first thing is, that you would not, as a believer, take salvation for granted. And uh, you will rejoice in the status that you have. Uh, and, and it's so easy, I think, especially if you grew up in church, it's easy to, to take that for granted. But seeing in this passage what God has done for us and what God has relieved us from should give you joy. And it should motivate you to do the good works you know, Jesus even said, I came to serve, not to be served. And he wants us to serve and not just to sit. Believe it or not, the Christian life is not about, just about listening to Bible studies and going to church. It's about doing good works for others. But if you're not a believer today, if you have not come to Christ and committed your life to him, what I hope that you will see is this blunt and truthfully difficult picture that, that Paul has painted for us here about the lost person and that you will realize that you are subject to paying for those sins with God's wrath and that you would come today and commit yourself to Christ. There's going to be people down here that you can talk to. I will be here. Matt Geddes down here. Donald is here. Uh, there are people that you can talk to. Uh, if you're a woman and you feel better talking with a woman, I'll get my wife or, or somebody down here as well to talk to. But come and don't waste time and give your life to Christ. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time that we've had to study your word. Oh, I thank you so much, Father, that you saved us, that you saved us from your own wrath uh, by sacrificing your son. I thank you that you've given us eternal life and that you give us the peace and comfort of having the Holy Spirit in our lives today. And I pray, Father, that those that are out there that don't know this joy, even though they're saved, would, would see that today. And I pray especially today, Father, for those that have not come to Christ for salvation, that you would draw them today, draw them to Christ, draw them to give their lives and be saved and have eternal life. And we ask these in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.